welcome to the Cranmer Fellows podcast. My name is Jonathan and I'm the host of the Cranmer Fellows. And today I am joined by my friend and fellow minister, Father Jerry Shriver. Jerry was the pastoral assistant at Good Shepherd before I was and before Tyler was. Tyler was on the uh, podcast last week. If you haven't heard that episode, you can go back and listen to that. Before Tyler and I, Jerry was a pastoral assistant. And actually, Jerry had left Good Shepherd by the time Angel and I got to Good Shepherd. He had gone on to Westminster Theological Seminary where he received his Masters of Divinity. And then after that, the bishop uh, placed him as a vicar at St. Andrew's Endicott, New York, which is just a few miles away from Binghamton. So he's back around in the area. Uh, Now he serves as the rector of St. Andrews, and maybe we'll get into a little bit of what uh, the difference between that and what it was like being a vicar. Uh, But Jerry is a a friend, a brother, just an all-around great guy, so I'm excited to have him. Thank you, Jerry, for hanging out with me on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks, John. Jerry, I want to journey through your call to the pastoral ministry. Because you are, you're a great guy. I mean, ever since our first interaction, I looked up to you as a pastor, as um, just a friend. Uh, you're very caring, gentle. One of the, you have one of the just greatest pastoral hearts that I've ever experienced. You're a great teacher, a great preacher. And I wish everyone mm-hmm. that ever listens to this could get to know you. Um, but alas, they only get maybe an hour <laughs> to, yeah. to hear a little bit about uh, you and your heart for, for God and, and for his church. But I figured, you know what, let's just trace kind of where you have come from, where, when, when you felt like God was calling you to pastoral ministry. And this is a, a podcast, not only, but primarily for pastors and for uh, guys who are thinking about the pastorate. And so I know that for me, it's helpful to hear stories from guys who have gone gone through it. Um, so why don't we start there, Jerry, and can you uh, just walk me through uh, when you first had a sense that God was calling you into the ministry? All right, sure. Well, I will say that it was a, it was not a lightning flash. <laughs> it was a, a slow burn a really slow burning call over the course of my life where God cleared cleared the way more than anything else. Cleared the way and then put me there um, rather than kind of, kind of up front striking me, hitting me over the head or trying to convince me that ministry was the way for me. Hmm. There were... So... Along the way, there were signposts, but I I didn't know what to make of them, really. My background in general was eclectic in the sense that uh, for a large period of my life, I would have considered myself a vagabond, uh, uh, maybe slightly (laughs) hippie-ish, more into the arts and humanities, and wondering just how to experience life and see what was out there. That is in contrast to my upbringing, which was fundamentalist Baptist. Um, 
but maybe that makes sense to a lot of people, <laughs> that contrast. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was probably in large part a response to that, to that kind of culture in my upbringing. But was it kind of like a rebellion, you feel like, or just the natural, you just, that's just how you were? Well, both. Both, okay. Both. I definitely had inclination toward the arts, inclination toward... Uh, kind of global kind of questions, looking for those, the answers to those kind of questions, but also some rebellion, I'm sure. I mean, I I don't think I, I could deny a level of rebellion, but also a level of trying to work out of something that was in me that didn't jive with not only who I was, but how I perceived God to be. Hmm. Um, so along the way, signposts of a call, uh, I at one point was in between places where I was traveling and moving. I would work odd jobs here and there and live the next place that offered an odd, odd job and just check it out. I was at home and I remember sitting on a side porch when everybody had gone to bed, smoking a cigarette. Then going into uh, the house, and I was sleeping in the living room. Our, our, my parents' house was pretty full of people at the time. Going into the living room, sitting on the couch, opening my Bible, and just being really overwhelmed with the awe of what I was seeing in Scripture and the juxtaposition of that and where I was in life. And I had the thought... What if I were to preach this passage? I don't even remember which one it was that I was opening up. What if I were to preach this passage? What if I were to be a pastor? What if I were to shepherd God's people? And then immediately this kind of counter thought was, you just came off the side porch smoking a cigarette and you're homeless practically in between like random places to live. Doesn't make any sense. But yeah. there was something there that stuck. I would say another instance similar to that was I was living in Baltimore for a while. And because of trying to get away from certain bad habits that I had developed, I moved to Baltimore and said, okay, the first Sunday that comes along, I'm going to church. I hadn't been to church for a while. I said, I'm going to the first church that I can find. I'm going to stay there. Well, the first church that I could find was New Refuge Deliverance Cathedral Incorporated in Baltimore, which was uh, an all-black Pentecostal church, uh, about 400 people with me as its only (laughs) white person. (laughs) And uh, I got involved there. That's a story or two in itself, but I got involved there. I was having trouble, much, much more trouble than I had thought getting a, getting work at, in Baltimore and was living on $24 a week <laughs> and what I had brought with me for rent. And so I had a lot of time to read scripture and I read and read and read and read and just thought, what a, what a wonderful thing this is to get to know scripture, to try to follow it more closely, to try to get out of just reading it 
for the way it makes me feel or only the verses that I think I understand, but to, to get into it, to immerse myself in it. Um, and so I, in that context, became an elder elect in the church and started trying to pursue a call through that. Um, so those, those were signposts, but it was up and down after that. I did go to Bible school uh, for a little while, left there, went back to university, got my undergraduate degree and, a, and then a, a master's degree. And then finally at Good Shepherd started kind of getting a more of a solid confirmation of the call. Where did you get your master's? Binghamton University. Yeah. So there was a circuitous route. Mm-hmm. Baltimore was pretty much in the distant past by that point. Okay. There was a circuitous route back to uh, the Binghamton area. I grew up about an hour east of Binghamton in Delaware oh, County. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was always fairly near to home. I I had been to a smattering of other colleges with a smattering of other majors. I wasn't really interested in a given discipline, academic discipline. I wasn't really interested in getting a degree. But when I decided it was time to just finish a bachelor's degree, I chose medieval studies because within that I could do a variety of disciplines. So I couldn't do, uh, I, I could study music, I could study art, humanities, literature, architecture, languages, uh, history, the works, but cram it into uh, a time period rather than focus on a discipline. So as an interdisciplinary course, I graduated from Binghamton University in Medieval Studies and then went on to do uh, some master's work in that as well. At what point did you go from Black Pentecostal mm-hmm. to Anglican, well, from Baptist Fundamental to Pentecostal to mm-hmm. Anglican? So during this time, during the whole time, I would have considered myself Baptist. Through undergrad, I was uh, still attending a Baptist church, mm-hmm. uh, fairly local. And then um, it was after I graduated and was in a, uh, I took a year off before uh, doing a master's degree because um, I was looking for scholarships, essentially. Mm-hmm. I was planning on going to the UK for mm-hmm graduate work and I didn't want to pay out of pocket. So I took a year off and I was working. And during that year, I was like, okay, uh, nothing against Baptists, but something just isn't jiving with me still. So I thought I had worked a lot of the old fundamentalism out, but something was still, it was still seemed kind of one dimensional in a lot of ways. Uh, the, in our particular church, a lot of Sermons were turning political, uh, who to vote for, why, mm-hmm. those kind of things. And some of my friends had begun to attend liturgical churches. And I thought, well, I'll try that too. So I looked around and uh, I saw a lot of Episcopal churches and I thought, well, no, that's not for me. But I did come across Good Shepherd on, online on their, on their website. And I listened to some of Matt Kennedy's sermons, and I was impressed and intrigued, uh, wanted to know more. Uh, also Googled what was 
just the church in general. And it was in at the end of this was in 2008. So they were in the middle it's of a pivotal year for good. Yeah, they were they were in the throes of losing their lawsuit uh, mm-hmm. with the, the Episcopal Church and losing their building. You hadn't become Anglican. You just were you had friends going to liturgical churches and you're starting to just dabble. Yeah. In some of that something just yeah. looking for something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so without, you go. Yeah. Without any specificity. You know, something's off in what you have been doing. Mm hmm. Is there something else? Right. You're not really sure. Right. So I'm not so I'm not one who like uh, came across the prayer book and fell in love with the prayer book, fell yeah. in love with the liturgy itself, or or had any other kind of liturgical background as far as the church year or mm-hmm. the church calendar or anything. I just was looking for something different. Yeah. And then also came across what was happening with uh, Church of the Good Shepherd. Matt and Anne and their uh, problems with the Episcopal Church. So my first Sunday at Good Shepherd was the last Sunday they had in their old building. Wow. So I'm sitting in the back and the church is filled with people mourning, crying, uh, really not knowing what to do with themselves. Not knowing what their next step as a parish is going to be, they uh, knew that they had to leave their building, but they didn't have anything else in in place yet. Uh, Matt and Ann also, I think in that service, uh, must have announced that they were going to need help getting out of their current house, out of the rectory that they were in. And so that first week that I attended church, I also went to their house and showed up and asked if I could help move their stuff, which was probably quite awkward for them. But then uh, I remember Matt and I just kind of driving back and forth to drop off boxes and him trying to say, so what What brings you to Good Shepherd? <laughs> like, you have a lot time. going on, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, you know, weeks after that, when they did get their new building and the new rectory, setting up bunk beds with some of the other parishioners and just getting involved in the life of the parish a little bit, mm. what I could at the time. So uh, I became Anglican through the back door. Mm-hmm. I, I got to know Matt and Ann. I loved Matt's preaching. I began to love the people at Good Shepherd. There was uh, uh, there wasn't a constriction of kind of constitution and canons that uh, my local parish could have, my, my previous congregation could have. And there was a variety of people in the congregation of all different socioeconomic backgrounds and coming from coming at it from different angles, which I had only seen uniformity to that point. So that was striking to me. Got involved in a Bible study and then not too long, six or eight months after that, it was time for me to pack up and go to the UK for some graduate work. Mm, And then when I came back, that's when I got more intensely involved at Good Shepherd. How long were you in the UK for? A year. A year. Mm -hmm. So you're in the UK for a year. You come back at Good Shepherd. How long after that till you were hired on? Fall of 2009, I go to the UK. Spring, summer of 2010, I come back. I get involved in Good Shepherd. 
And I mm-hmm. um, I came back with some, uh, having undergone some personal difficulties, met an Anne very pastorally, lovingly saw me through that, put up with me just showing up randomly and knocking on their door, <laughs> which I know now... <laughs> You should never do. <laughs> uh, but they, they were you so. You had to go through that. <laughs> yeah, they were so good to me, and um, I tried on several hats while I was there. They had me pray for people up front for a while. When during communion, I would I would pray for people. Over some time, I eventually took on what was an evangelism committee. I didn't know what evangelism committee was supposed to do. Um, So kind of floundered around with that for a while. And then they, I was on vestry and learned that they had been uh, told as a parish that they needed to bring on an assistant and that an assistant would help with the kind of fluctuation or the plateau in attendance from people just falling into the margins after a certain number because one one person couldn't handle them. They got serious about that in 2013, but Matt had somebody in mind for that position. Meanwhile, I didn't say anything, but I just prayed that if that was something that that God would have me to do that he would open that door mm. in a very natural kind of way. And through praying about that and increasingly desiring it was being established. Matt had us, Matt had me and one or two other guys who were kind of dabbling in preaching or thinking about different roles in the parish uh, watch a series on expository preaching. Did he have you watch that? Is that the Steve Lawson? Uh, I watched the, I think John MacArthur does the first yeah. three ones. Okay. Right. And I haven't, I just watched the John MacArthur ones. Okay. So and it maybe, was incredible. Yeah. So maybe he gave us like one or two or three, but I think I watched the whole series and I think at one point maybe Steve Lawson takes over. He does. He teaches, I think it's almost like a regular class after that. He teaches yeah. most of it. John uh John MacArthur does all the introductory work. Okay, so I watched that. Let me jump back for a second and just say that I was confirmed mm. when I came back from okay. UK. Confirmed Anglican. Yeah. Now, 2010. okay. Did I, did I still have any real sense of what it meant to be Anglican? <laughs> no. Well, can I pause you there? Uh, you said that there was something missing mm-hmm. in your Baptist church yeah how did anglicanism fill those holes i think the things that drew me somehow were the things that filled that but only got deeper and are still getting deeper so when i mentioned for example matt's preaching or the fact that it can encompass a variety of people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds and they can all meet together lovingly. Uh, it was those those things that did start to point me toward a beauty and a richness in Anglicanism and in the liturgy itself. Mm. I don't know if that if that makes sense, but it's it's something that is still deepening as my awareness of the riches of the the tradition 
grow, the, the riches of the prayer book grow, the richness of scripture itself, even though I would have considered the Baptist tradition biblically grounded, this was something different. The exposition was deeper. The truths were richer. It was more vibrant. Life was more three-dimensional. It wasn't like, okay, sign here and promise that you won't smoke, drink, sell tobacco or alcohol and, you know, yeah. sign the list and then stick to it where my conscience is bound. And I'm not sure that it really reflects scripture overall, but, uh, but a cultural uniformity that we all have to kind of institutionalize and stick to. None of that was there, which lent to the vibrancy, which probably was the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict and lead and speak through scripture and trust that God had given his word to meet people wherever they might be and to lead them by the power of the Holy Spirit into deeper truth and unity, but not uniformity. You are at this point where you know that Good Shepherd is needing yeah. somebody somebody to yeah. be an assistant to Matt. You want the job, but you also want God to make it clear. You don't want to yeah. force yourself into into something right. that isn't what God wants for your life. Right. And in this time, man, as you watch those videos on preaching, are you preaching? Is he does he have you preach? I had preached I'm not sure why, but maybe I had because I had shown some interest or something, but I had preached once, maybe twice by that point at Good Shepherd. I had preached previously in other contexts. Also, I can't okay. tell you why exactly, <laughs> except for that, you know, along the way, there were these moments of really sensing a call and wanting to do something about it and somebody saying, okay, try. How did you feel after you, you preached those times? Um, not great. No, we should touch on that. Yeah. Because uh, preaching in general has been very difficult for me. Mm. But we can come back to that. Yeah, let's come back to that. Okay. I, I'll I'll come back to that for sure. Well, then when did when did Matt, Matt had another guy in mind? Okay, so he has How another he guy in you? mind, and he's really hot to trot about <laughs> this other guy. It's it's the perfect picture. Well, not so much for the other guy. Oh, he he decided to move on and to uh, switch directions and kind of uh, take on a different sort of ministry in education. And while that is going on, I was also saying, okay, uh, let me try to figure out how to think about things. I, I always wanted to kind of integrate the various parts of my life, but not. I never knew how to do that. Okay, so I pursued poetry for a while. Then I pursued music for a while. Then I pursued art for a while. Then this felt like, okay, now I'm just adding one more thing to the list for me to have to think about, for me to have to decide and not know how to decide. So I'm really just feel like I'm adding this to a revolving door of options that I'm never going to know what happened. Academics was another one. Medieval study. So it's just this uh, growing revolving door of options that I had no way to really integrate and no way to really know what my purpose was. 
And I'd try to make charts. I'd try to make lists. I'd try to do everything I could, try to answer those questions that people say, well, if you could only do one thing, what would it be? Well, it depends on, you know. The season. The season. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or if you could, if you had all the money in the world, no money was never an option. What's the one thing where your greatest gift meet, matches the, the greatest need, <laughs> need in yeah. the world? And that's your like, calling. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Or I could think of multiple, multiple ways that that could happen. Uh -huh. um, so... I, in the midst of praying through that option, in the midst of watching those videos and all that, I also applied to art school in Georgia and got accepted there. I also got engaged during that season. Janelle and I were essentially thinking that, and I didn't tell her I was praying about the pastoral assistant option. We were essentially beginning to think that our two options were to move to Georgia and go to art school or uh, potentially go back to the Bronx to the church that she was familiar with and see if we could get involved with things there. In the meantime, the the man that Matt had set his heart on had moved on and nobody knew what to do. I approached Matt and said, I'd like to be considered for the pastoral assistant job. And he said, funny thing. Because just this week, our senior warden, who's on vacation in, in the South, called me and said, hey, what about Jerry? Mm -hmm. And not, not knowing that, our junior warden also approached me today and said, hey, what about Jerry? Could he be an option? And I was going in with fear and trepidation. I was shaking. I was like, I don't want to presume to think that I'm <laughs> worthy of this job. But that's how it happened. And then uh, took on the job in... June, July, June of 2014. Mm. So June 1st, I believe, was my start date. Uh, June 14th, Janelle and I got married. And so our, our life together has been pastoral assistant, seminary, ministry. How long were you a pastoral assistant? Two years. You went? Two years. During that time... A lot of discernment mm -hmm. is going on mm -hmm. on whether or not this is really what this is really uh, what you feel like God's calling you to do. Uh, yep. You you said that you had before then tried to figure out all these different boxes mm -hmm. that you have in your life and what God is wanting to wanting you to sort of focus on. Yeah. At what point did you realize? Yes, it is. It is ministry. Or did you not during that time? I never you did. Went, you never did. I not not in so many not in such a sense. I, but again, it was just these backdoor ways that God kept bringing me in and saying, "Just just take this step. You don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about ultimate things. Just take this step." So I mentioned the videos um, as I watched those. One thing that two things that really stood out to me. Aside from exposition itself, I was pretty much already convinced of that. This just fine-tuned it for me. One thing that they said was, you know, you, you have to declare, you have to proclaim God's truth in season and out of season. 
uh, are you willing to do that? And I had to ask myself, would I, if I were in that place, would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to uh, address scripturally, when scripture addresses it, would I be willing to address the real tough cultural issues that are going on, like Matt did, uh, like others are currently doing? And that was a soul-searching moment for me. And when I, before God said, I would do it, I would do it with your help. If you strengthened me, if you taught me, if you gave me the tools, I would do it. That was a pivotal moment for me. And and then that video also said, you need to learn to love the people who are against you mm-hmm. in ministry. You have to go... Put your arm around them. You have to show them that you love them, even amidst their antagonism, even amidst their all their pushback, wherever it might come from. You have to find a way to love them. And those two pieces have are still shaping my my ministry, mm-hmm. loving people that I wouldn't naturally choose to love, and saying the hard things that need to be said from God's word. Hmm. So in answering those two things and the the timeline of the position opening up, things locked into place, God used the pastoral assistantship to further uh, embed that in my heart. I entered in a time of difficulty at Good Shepherd right at the cusp of discipline, a discipline case that led to some division in the church and cut my teeth on on that and it was still just one step at a time take this step take yeah. this step in the pastoral assistant role I took on the overseeing the committees that was essentially my I did I did preach teach try on all the hats of ministry and we call it pat we called it pastoral assistantship because I wasn't ordained, so I couldn't be called an assistant rector or assistant pastor. So that's how we came up with that title. And then just, but was still taking on roles that would be pastoral as increasingly a means of discerning a specific call. I, uh, I can really relate to your working through all those different areas in your life and trying right. to figure out what, what to do. And that's, that's been yeah me ever since graduating from undergrad and uh and then even into where i am now thinking through okay well what what's my ministry supposed to look like what do yeah. i do you know and um and uh whenever i was ordained a deacon i i really liked what i was to say in some of the oaths that I was making where I would say, I will with God's help. Mm-hmm. I will with God's help. Right. I loved that because it, it, it yes, it was this weighty oath yeah. that I was making, but I was also declaring that, like you said, I can't, I can't do this yeah, right. without God's help. Right. And that really got me ready for ordination. I was looking over those, oaths and remembering that this isn't like my ministry. This isn't my thing. This isn't something that I'm creating or building for myself. 
But if this is what God is calling me to do, then he will equip me to do it and he'll be there with me to do it. And and now facing uh, ordination to the priesthood, that's exactly once again mm-hmm. in front of me yeah. thinking, man, am I sure? Like, is this really... Yeah. Is this really the right thing? Right. Is this really what God wants? And and so what I'll I'll pray many times is God, if it's not what you want, just stop it. Yeah. Just yeah. stop it. You right. can stop it. I'm not I don't want to uh presume and think that this is just that the church needs me right. to do this. Right. I don't want to think that. If I and then I'll if I am thinking that, I am thinking that. stop me. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so it's just uh, this this morning at in Bible study, uh, Tuesday Bible study, we were in Mark nine and the story of the the young boy with the unclean spirit and yeah. his father who says, I believe, help my unbelief and we talked about uh what that uh, what that meant and how that's that's really the prayer of faith that every Christian yeah. should pray every day. Right. Really, yes, we we trust in Christ, um, and and our trust and our dependence upon Him is often seen in us asking for His help, mm-hmm. and boy well, is asking for His help and asking for Him to give us faith. Yeah, it was uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who with that text. Um, said something to the effect of, "It's only the man of faith who realizes how little faith he has." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? right. And so I've had to, I've had to sort of embrace that mm-hmm. in the ordination process. Yeah. Is listen, I mean, if this is what you want, yeah. you know, um, let it be done. Right. And uh, but you know, you're gonna have to, you have to really help me because yeah. I want to do it. But then I need your help to want to do it. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's kind of that paradox there. You were there for two years. Yeah. And then you went to seminary. Uh-huh. It was a little bit tricky. It, it was simple in one sense. Bishop Dobbs told me to go to seminary and that it was going to be at Westminster and that it was not going to be online. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that part was easy. Yeah. But um, it was because... At a certain point, Matt was really uh, convinced that ordination is what needed to happen. So when we brought that possibility to Bishop Dobbs, those are the steps he said I needed to take. Um, at my time at Good Shepherd, I I had hit some several bumps in the road, and just like you're saying, had to keep coming back to the fact that um, Jesus is sufficient. He 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 would reveal himself in so such rich ways through scripture. I remember I was at a complete loss of what I was supposed to do in my job, what I was supposed to make of it, how I was supposed to shape it, how I was supposed to deal with pastoring committee leaders and reshaping that whole side of the parish life. And in the process, I was also already feeling burnt out from the division stuff and losing sight of who Jesus even was. Mm. And then I read John 6 and just the presentation of Jesus there was so powerful to me that I knew that was the Jesus I could come back to and cling to. And it's those moments of him saying, I'm the one you can cling to when everything else is either dark in the unknown or dark in your experiences or dark for whatever reason. I'm the anchor. I can, you can hold on to me. So I was 
doing that more. And, and like you also said, it, it reveals your own sinfulness, your own desperate need more and more. But all that to say, I, I came to acquiescence, I guess, of, yeah, I would, I would want to pursue ordination, possibly. And if that means going to seminary, then I'll go. So Janelle and I packed up after two years um, and moved to Philadelphia, went to Westminster. How was your time at Westminster? It was rigorous for other people in some ways and rigorous for me in a, in a different way. Rigorous for me because at any given point, I was kind of doing double time to compare what was being taught with either the Anglican tradition or the wider Christian tradition as a whole. I felt the need to to do that, to do double time, to contextualize what I was learning and to uh, integrate it in my own way. Mm. So it was it was rigorous on its own terms. The languages are they they prize their emphasis on the languages. So you do the Greek and the Hebrew first and then in theory, at least, the rest of your classes are based on firsthand reading and working through texts in that way. Were you serving in a church during that time when you were going to seminary? The idea was that I would have uh, sort of a, uh, a rotating curacy. The program is four, was four years. Um, so the idea was that I would be, have a placement in four different churches, one each year to observe, to get my hands dirty where I could, my feet wet where I could, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, and then just kind of at the end of those four years, either serve a real curacy or start moving toward ministry. It didn't work out that way. Uh, placements were kind of falling through. And I also wanted something consistent for uh, me and Janelle as a family, a place where we could go to church regularly. So we ended up going to a Presbyterian church for the first three years of our time, Orthodox Presbyterian church, where we were uh, also, you know, not... It wasn't our, our the tradition that we had grown to love or to understand, um, but it was still a good kind of incubation period for us. And then the final year, I was ordained a deacon, and so I served my diaconate at uh, Reformed Episcopal Church in the mm -hmm. Philadelphia area, and that was that was a great experience. Walk me through what the transition was from Westminster back here, were you looking at, were um, in conversations with Bishop Dobbs, were there like other churches that he was considering you going to yeah. as well? And then how did St. Andrews come about? Yeah. Um, he, we, at a clergy retreat, we sat down, he said, okay, I'm thinking about ordaining you to the priesthood. Next May, we need to think about what that will mean. You'll also be graduating, so we need to think about the next steps for your ministry. Uh, I'd like to basically get, uh, have you take on a church in some capacity. I have three options for you. He uh, named a church, one of the churches in our diocese. He then also uh, named another church, 
we're non-geographic and these were two very kind of uh, geographically disparate places. Um, and then he said, and I wonder what you would think about maybe something like church planting in your home area. And I said, and he said, central New York. I said, well, okay, option number one, I'm not really interested in. Option two, I would consider. And option three, I would consider since it's uh, back home and I know the kind of spiritual dimension there. Mm-hmm. Come to find out he had St. Andrew's in mind as that church planting option. There were some uh, other pieces that needed to get worked out. But fairly soon after that, he revealed his desire for me to come and be at St. Andrew's. Mm. Like you said, it's just down the road from yeah. Good Shepherd. Yes, back home as a vicar. Yeah. And Matt and I have talked, we've talked briefly about the difference between a vicar and a rector. Yeah. Uh, but just as way of review. I would say, I would say it this way. A vicar okay. is appointed by the bishop. So that's a polity issue. He's appointed by the bishop and in conjunction with the senior and junior warden of the parish. Okay. The reason for appointing is, my understanding, is that the church is either kind of financially, potentially unviable, or spiritually unviable, or both. There's a there's a question mark about the parish, and there may be a bit of a question mark about confirming a call for the priest. So a vicarage is an appointment that allows that relationship to kind of get sorted out. But it also allows for the 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 priest to kind of set the stage for that parish to have a rector. So then the difference would be that the congregation via the vestry calls a rector. So yeah, Bishop Dobbs places me as a vicar. I'm a vicar in the sense of I'm in the place of the bishop in that parish. But then as a rector, the congregation has... Mm-hmm through the vestry called me to be their pastor. Okay. So they're both pastoral roles. One is more uh, directly related to the bishop. The next one is actually a little bit kind of more autonomous in a way. Okay. How long? You were a vicar for two years? For two years. Two years. Just recently became the rector. Mm -hmm. How has that transition been? How have you, have you felt there like be a difference in the way yeah. you relate to the church. Yeah, it's a pretty big difference. Yeah. For me because I was my life was on hold because I didn't want to presume that either I would choose to stay here or that the church would choose to keep me. There was always the possibility that they would say we're not interested. I had first dibs as far as consideration, but that didn't mean that they would call me here. So it was open-ended in that sense. It was also open-ended on my part as I explored still more possibilities and let mm-hmm. God close those doors. Um, but then it was also different because coming transitioning from vicar to rector, as a vicar, I was very conscious of my responsibility to lay just lay groundwork, to just kind of... Um, lay expository groundwork to lay structural groundwork so that um, the next person who came in, whether it was me or somebody else, could build on that. I wasn't 
coming in to overhaul anything. I was coming in to make things stable enough for somebody else to build. But in transition to Rector, now in my mind, it's like time to get down to business. Mm-hmm. But the general consensus at that point is we've seen everything there is to see out of this guy. We know what he's about. We know what... So we were already settled. We're settled into his pattern, his rhythm. And I'm like, I haven't started yet. <laughs> so so it's, it, it's a learning curve for all of us to then say, okay, oh, okay, now you, you actually have a vision. And a, who said you could have a vision? <laughs> Those kind of things. Uh, so we're working through polity. We're working through still, you know, what it means to be Anglican, still what it means to have kind of... Uh, left the Episcopal Church, even though that was many years ago. Um, culturally, it wasn't all that long ago. Mm. Still going on. Um, so just helping us all to understand what it means to be a rector and what that is like in the life of a parish. So it's been it's been a fun ride. It's been interesting. A lot to learn. My own assumptions and Thinking what, thinking that everybody's automatically on the same wavelength as I am, and what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my next, my next question was like, what are some expectations that you had about the ministry that have been blown out of the water, or anything that you haven't expected? I came in knowing that ministry was difficult. I came in knowing that um, ministry life can be very difficult. It can be very dark. It can be very lonely. Um, that it is a death to self and all those things. But I still thought that if I come at it with love and with um, at least some measure of coherent understanding of Scripture and an ability to teach Scripture, that everything else will, will work out. What I didn't realize was that I don't actually love anybody as much as I love myself. And I don't actually have as deep or a coherent understanding of Scripture as I thought, nor do I have the understanding of people and what it means to care for them in a way that they can receive that I thought I had. All the surprises are on me and then leading us back to just that clinging to Christ and asking him for mercy, asking him for help each step of the way. I imagine that's where God wants you yeah, and wants us in ministry. And that's really helpful for me to hear. Uh, just looking at, looking into my own work and ministry, it's so easy for me to think that I need to be, I need to be more, I really need to be better I, you know, I really need to, or I, I, I'm so weak in all of these areas that I feel like if I'm going to be a priest, I have to be really, really good at and like professional at. And I've had to come to that realization that I am not as impressive yeah. as I thought I was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and remembering that I need to I just need, I need to depend on God. I need to rely on Christ. I really like how John 6 was really helpful for you and still is really helpful for you. And that phrase from 
Peter continues to go on my mind as well. Uh, to whom shall we go? You, you're the one mm-hmm. with the words of life. Yeah. There's nowhere Where else. else. We go? Yeah. I can't go anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so you, you're, you're stuck with us. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, as, as ministers, as pastors, deacons, bishops, Christ is stuck with us. us. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And it's that it's that commitment that I'm I'm I, I keep getting called back to. My commitment wasn't even to ministry itself. My commitment is as a disciple of Christ. And he reveals to me what that means each step of the way. But the option there's only two options to leave into oblivion or to take the step that he's put in front of me. You know, and so right now this learning to love, learning to teach, learning to uh, be the pastor that he wants me to be is my discipleship. It's what he wants from me. It's what he's going to use to sanctify me. And it's, it's in some sense a nature of my relationship with him. Like Peter, who Jesus on the seashore is questioning Peter's love for him, but the way he's asking Peter to express his love for Jesus is he's ordaining him at that moment for pastoral mm-hmm. ministry feed my sheep mm-hmm. um, that's that's the call and you know seminary everything else nothing nothing in and of itself equips you for that except for abiding in the vine and allowing him to feed you and bear fruit through you you will flail, you will look awkward, your failings will be on display, but he will still do his work. You said preaching has been yeah, a, a rough road. Yeah. Walk me through how that's been going. Uh, preaching pre-seminary and during seminary was very dark for me. I would... I would preach and immediately really experience a period of despair that would last a week, two weeks, every time I preached, um, whether for a class or in church. And it was something that I just didn't think I could overcome, and I couldn't imagine what it would possibly be like to try to prepare a sermon every week, let alone get over the hump of the darkness and let down from it. To the point where I was invited to, through school, to preach, uh, to do like a preaching internship in California. And I refused it because I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, And that's, preaching is still difficult for me. What I'm learning is to do the preparation, write the best way that I can to communicate what God is saying, continue to fine-tune it, continue to learn to meet people where they're at with his word. But in the meantime, trust him with the process, trust him with myself, not rely or look to feedback from visual feedback while I'm preaching or verbal feedback after my preaching that may... Tip me, try to 
I may try to feed on that to give me encouragement, or I may easily let it become a darkness for me. Mm. But to just entrust the whole thing to Christ and have him do what he's going to do again, where he, he can do the work, even if I'm not all the way clear or am clumsy in my theological expression or, or anything else. Whenever I've written a sermon and it was just a real, real bad one and Matt just ripped it to shreds and then I have to preach it. <laughs> I like in that moment, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I, I have to do is like praying five minutes before going up there is just, you know what? It's not about me anymore in any way it's not about my words or how i articulate everything Mm -hmm. in the end the holy spirit's going to have to speak to his people through his word and i could just get up there and just read his word yeah and god uses it to to change lives because it's 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 god's word that that does that and so yeah i mean it has been in those moments of my own um anxiety and uh, fear as to how the sermon is going to go, remembering that God uses weak, yes, weak men. Right. And every, every, every approach to the pulpit, not that I think of it this way every week, but every approach to the pulpit has to be a crucifixion mm-hmm. of, of our cleverness, of ourselves, of our meta narrative, whatever it is that's going on in our minds of our pride of our usefulness and it's always the weirdest little thing that actually ends up being something that the spirit uses to help people um so we have to allow it to be allow ourselves to be on display humiliated crucified crushed if that's what it will take for god to work through that weakness you know what john chrysostom says about uh feedback Mm-mm. I think it's Chris Hostel. He says, when somebody uh, when somebody criticizes you for your sermon, ignore them because they don't know what they're talking about. Likewise, when someone praises you for your sermon, <laughs> ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's a good practice. <laughs> Just ignore them. Yeah. Ignore them. Jerry, thank you. I, everything that you have said has not only been helpful for me, but I can... I could see how just this brief time of you sharing a little bit of your journey into ministry could be like a breath of fresh air to a lot of guys. Um, I was going to ask you, well, I guess I I still could ask you uh, what you would say to a guy who is thinking about going into the ministry and what his next steps should be. We could do that. But I also feel like everything you've said has been very helpful because oftentimes when guys ask that, they think that there is this clear this this clear step that they'll take, and when they take it, they'll kind of know what God wants for them. But in reality, it really is most of the time like you like your own experience. It's you just you live your life and you have these desires and some of them are conflicting and God opens up some doors and closes other doors and he guides you into it and then at, at some point you 
you do realize, okay, like I'm going to do this. I mean, up to the the hour of my diaconate ordination, I was still like, is this the right thing? I, I don't know if this yeah, is the right, right thing. Right, I, right. I don't know. And I'm and I and I was being ordained a transitional deacon. So I was saying I'll also be a priest, but now looking to the priesthood ordination, is this is this really right? Is this yeah. <laughs> is this really what God wants? And that question continues throughout your life. And I, I mean I would imagine and even as a priest, you're like, am I Oh yeah. Is this right? Yeah. Is this what God wants? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I've seen I remember when I was uh thinking about and praying about the possibility of being the pastoral assistant before it was on anybody else's mind, thinking about seminary and saying, I I'm not interested in seminary. Thinking spending three or four years on the Bible sounds really boring <laughs> to me. Um, I'm much more stimulated by other things, um, but it, but but that acts, not seminary itself, but coming to know Christ more deeply, coming to know His Word more deeply, coming to look at, uh, in particular, the Church Fathers and interpretation of Scripture has been is far outstrips anything else that I was ever interested in, mm. and the parallel to that is that. When the thoughts come or the desires come for, or the questions come for, should I still do some art? Should I dabble in poetry? Should I think more seriously about academics? Each time I give those uh, back to the Lord, I'm increasingly confident that if he wants me to use those down the road, it will be increasingly for his glory and it will be kind of free of all the angst and the tension and the baggage and everything else. He'll give it back to me if it's something that's useful for what he's called me to do for his glory. Mm. So if, if there was any advice, it would just be keep giving up, keep, keep, keep giving yourself and everything that belongs to you back to Christ for his use. And he will use it if, if he wants to. And either way, he will he will make it a blessing and exciting for you. Thank you, Jerry, for sharing and giving us a glimpse into your own walk with Christ and what He's working on in you right now in the ministry. I'm 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 very encouraged by it, and I'm sure many guys will cool. be encouraged by it. Um, cool. So we'll end it there, and thank you also uh, for listening. And uh, we'll see you, Lord willing, next week. Oh,